Mark Stein's Last Call. Buckingham Palace has announced that His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh died in the early hours of the morning, just a few weeks before his 100th birthday. There will be many of the Queen's subjects who will believe that he did not make his century because of the vile conduct of his wretched grandson and the in-law from hell, and I would not disagree with that. God rot both of them. He kind of sort of semi-retired from official royal engagements around the Commonwealth in the autumn of 2017. He was 96, which is... 30 years past the average retirement age, or four and a half decades past it, if you're a French or Greek civil servant. A week or so after the announcement on one of his final public engagements, an old soldier said to him he regretted the retirement. Prince Philip muttered, I've done my bit. The mathematician Michael Attia told him he wished he wasn't standing down. The Duke replied, well, I can't stand up much longer. As it turned out, he outlasted the younger Sir Michael. His Royal Highness was the Queen's consort. That's an ill-defined role prone to an accumulation of frustrations. For Americans, think First Lady or Vice President for life. A lot of consorts are unpopular with their spouse's subjects. For example, uh, Queen Rania. Jordan's uh, current Hashemite hottie. Prince Philip did it longer than anyone in the history of the royal family since the day in 1952 when he and Princess Elizabeth were at treetops in Kenya and received the news that George VI, the King's speech guy, had died. Harry Truman was in the White House. Stalin was in the Kremlin. Some fella called Mao had just taken over in China. That's a long time. I last saw him five years ago in Glasgow with my daughter, who was impressed by how cool he was and how spry for a nonagenarian. Elsewhere, opinions differ. He's worshipped as a god in outlying parts of Vanuatu, but in Canberra, the ruling Liberal Party went bananas and ended Tony Abbott's premiership for giving the guy an Australian knighthood. Still in all, he's kept the show on the road in an age hostile to the monarchical principle and one which has seen the crowns of almost all his cousins come tumbling down throughout Europe. I chanced to dine at Buckingham Palace on the eve of the Australian referendum on whether to become a republic. On my transatlantic flight, having been holed up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire too long, I thought I ought to refresh myself on court etiquette. It's Your Majesty and Your Royal Highness on first greeting, followed by ma'am and sir subsequently. I was all on top of it and ready for my close-up, but made the mistake of taking a complicated phone call just before leaving my hotel and arrived at the palace port cochere, running a little late and somewhat distracted. The Duke of Edinburgh came toward me from across the room and I stuck my hand out and barked, Hi! He took it well enough and muttered, Hi! In return, no exclamation before handing me off to Princess Alexandra's husband. It's important to be able to adapt, and in the descent into a demotic age, he mostly kept his footing, notwithstanding the occasional strain. Can't they switch his microphone off? Was his reaction to a long set by Elton John, although he is said at a reception at the White House to have found that song about the bloody muskrats. That would be the Captain and Tennille's muskrat love, not without its charms. Arriving at the Albert Hall for the film premiere of the Bond film Die Another Day, and upon being informed by an excited usher that Madonna would be singing the title song, he turned to the Queen and deadpanned, so we'll be needing the earplugs. I'm gonna wake up, yes and no, I'm gonna kiss some part of, I'm gonna keep He wasn't wrong about that. For a prince, he was prone to loose lips and he didn't suffer fools gladly, which is a handicap in the royal biz. At Bug House that night, we discussed the European Union, and all I can say without betraying confidences is that the Brexit result would not have dismayed those of us around the table. 
Initially, I was unsure of how forcefully to disagree with His Highness, but the Honourable Sir Angus Ogilvie, sitting next to me, kept goading me sotto voce. Go on, he enjoys it. He did. As Diana Mosley said to me many years ago of the Duchess of Windsor, he always returned the ball. As a Canadian, I was somewhat distracted by the referendum down under, which I kept trying to slip into the conversation. But the Duke was inscrutable on that front, or perhaps, as I now think of it, quietly confident about victory. The Romanovs, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns and his family's own throne in Greece were long gone. But the House of Windsor endures, thanks in part to his sharp stewardship. The young queen was shy and unconfident. He was shrewd, witty, widely read and stoic about the accumulated frustrations of a manly man stuck as permanent second banana. Toward the end of that night, as he walked us to the door before my carriage turned back into a pumpkin, I made an offhand remark contrasting the 1901 Aussie constitution with the 1867 Canadian one, and the subject evidently engaged him because he launched into a remarkably well-informed disquisition on the differences between the two. The Australian states are sovereign entities in a way the Canadian provinces are not, etc., There were a half dozen or so of us at dinner that night, an earl, a viscount, a baron, a knight, plus a plain old Canadian mister. All are now gone. Sir Angus, Alexandra's hubby, Viscount Younger, former defence secretary, the Earl of Carnarvon, known to viewers of the Crown as Porchy, the Queen's racing manager, Lord Blake, the great historian of the Tory party, to whom I was presented by the Duke with the minimalist introduction, Mr. Steinwright, do you read? Lord Blake averred that he did. I'd assumed upon acceptance of my invitation that we guests would be there as unpaid jesters to amuse our royal hosts, but in fact HRH was a quick-witted chap. We were hard put to keep up with him, and I would have to say he had the best lines of the night. One of my fellow diners, bemoaning the lack of agricultural workers in Britain, explained that his farm now brought in young Australians and South Africans who were able to make 90 to 100 quid a day, about uh, £60,000 a year, I think, picking onions. Crying all the way to the bank, murmured the Duke, channeling Liberace. I thought that was a rather good line. Professional level, indeed. Every other guest from that dinner is dead. Our host died a week and a half ago. I am the lone survivor, and thus I shall be the next to die, which is a glum thought. So how about a non-glum one? A bit of musical trivia. Uh, We have many musical mavens who listen to this show, such as uh, Gary Alexander, who has his own marvellous musical show on the radio in the Pacific Northwest. If I were to ask Gary... To name the records Frank Sinatra made with Count Basie, he would have no difficulty answering. Likewise, if I were to ask Gary to name the record Frank made with Duke Ellington. But if I were to ask him to name the record Sinatra made with the Duke of Edinburgh, I think I just might stump Gary. So here it is, a charity fundraising single for Britain's National Playing Fields Association whose president, uh, the Duke, uh, Edinburgh, that is, not Ellington, uh, whose president the Duke was for 66 years. Uh, Frank does the introduction and then Prince Philip sings. Uh, My stenographer may have typed that up the wrong way round. In buying this record, you have joined Frank Sinatra, Ivan Novello and Carol Coates in helping to provide money for more playing fields. Thank you all on behalf of the many thousands who will benefit from your support. If only she'd looked my way Just stopped to say a word of greeting this let's pretend would end there and then 
very moment when my heart stopped beating if only she turned to smile that little while however fleeting would always seem a dream to dream today if only she'd looked my Axel Stordal arranging and conducting a very rare single with a very rare double act, the chairman of the board and the Duke of Edinburgh, a year before Princess Elizabeth ascended the throne. If only she'd looked my way. She did, when she was 13 years old, and she never looked away. Wise guy, Ken Wall, Alan Funt, who's angry, a Satanist turned comedian, and when is dating through the personal ads, dangerous business. All that and more all next week on Larry King Live, 9 Eastern on CNN. As you know, we memorialize the dead of Chicom 19 because we don't think the Chinese Politburo has the right to kill millions of people who would otherwise have died of something else, whether three weeks later or three decades later. Among the toll of the Chinese coronavirus is the man who made CNN, Larry King. Cable news was different back then. Tonight, Steve Allen, once called television's man for all seasons, is dead at age 78. We'll share memories of this multi-talented talk show pioneer with friends and fans. Joining us from Las Vegas, entertainer Steve Lawrence, who knew Steve Allen for 47 years. In Los Angeles, television personality Ed McMahon, with him is Carl Reiner, who received the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor earlier this month. In West Palm Beach, former talk show host Mike Douglas. And then, with just a week to go to Election Day 2000, we'll talk to the Democratic vice presidential candidate, Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. It's all next on Larry King Live. Now there's a man with a sense of priorities. The vice presidential candidate takes second billing to Steve Lawrence and Ed McMahon. I miss those kinds of shows. For the full hour, Tina Louise. You want politics? Here's Larry King with a man pondering a presidential run. Now let's touch a lot of bases. Uh, the first thing you keep, we keep hearing is you're going to announce in January. Right. Or make some sort of decision by January. Well, I'm going to announce whether or not I decide to run or whatever. And I what are you doing? I haven't made now? that. I mean, all that's happening now is people are coming out with polls, but the polls have been unbelievable. So I am going to form a presidential exploratory committee. I might as well announce it on your show. Everyone else does. Well, that's pretty close. Most people who form exploratory committees, that's that major step toward going. Well, it's a step. Can you say it's a major step? I don't think I can say it's a major step. I'm looking at it very seriously. I have a lot to lose, Larry. I mean, 
I'm the biggest developer in New York by far. I'm doing more, as you know, from being here a lot. I mean, I'm doing more than any. I'm building 90-story buildings all over the place. And we're just doing a lot. And we're doing great. I mean, the city's the hottest city. And I'm the biggest developer in the hottest city in the world right now. Other guys, you know, they run. Pat Buchanan, what is he? You know, he's not giving up anything. What's he doing? And politicians, when they run, they run from one office to another. It's the same thing. They, you know, answer different calls. I'm giving up a lot if I decide to run. So. We're going to look at it. We're going to explore it. We're doing the committee, and uh, we'll see how it comes out. And the committee's going to look into all areas, talk to people, all areas, financing. But really, really, the big thing they're going to look at is, is can you win? Exploratory committees. 16 years later, Donald Trump didn't waste his time with any of that rubbish. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 87. Talk show supremo for decades. Larry King. There was no way they could have known that morning that they awoke upon a fateful day. April 1986, and a town of some 14,000 people in Soviet Ukraine that has lived in obscurity since its days as a ducal hunting lodge in the 12th century is about to become world famous. Chernobyl. The Soviet nuclear leak was first detected in Sweden. 60 miles north of Stockholm, tests at a power station showed unexpectedly high level radioactivity on a worker's shoes. Russia has many nuclear stations like the one at Chernobyl and they produce 15% of her electricity. The design is unique to Russia and not used in the West. You don't say. As with the Covid, so with the fallout. The communists lied to the world as the winds blew the radiation all over Europe and Asia. There was a brief mention of the disaster on Soviet television news. They said two people had died and 197 had been taken to hospital. A man in Kiev contacted a man in Israel and spoke of hundreds of casualties. The Americans took satellite pictures of the devastated power plant. They believe they are evidence that the casualties were much higher than officially admitted. This what about the reports over here, Ambassador, that uh, several thousand people have been killed in no, the accident? That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Was Mrs. Thatcher annoyed that you didn't tell the West earlier about this accident? Well, we informed the government of the United Kingdom this morning about this accident officially. In Poland, where some radioactivity was measured, children were given iodine as a precaution. The Soviet Union may have lied to the planet, but inside the Kremlin, they understood the reality of what they were dealing with. They had no particular care for Poles or Swedes, but for the sake of the regime, they had to stop the spread of the radiation from the exposed reactor core, seal it off, shut it down. But how? They chose to smother the reactor with sand and boron and other such materials, and it fell to 100 helicopters to drop those materials uh, on the reactor over the course of a fortnight. It was a very perilous mission. The team were called the liquidators, and the commanding pilot from an air base in Kiev was Nikolai Antoshkin. Such temperature conditions are difficult for helicopters. Their temperature was up to 200 degrees at different points, at a height of 200 meters above the reactor. In the burning heat, helicopters hovered over the exploded reactor. Engineers threw down sacks of sand while the pilots struggled to control the helicopter. After one or two flights like this, engineers vomited on landing. The heat, along with the radiation, was too much for a human. Hovering over the heat at Chernobyl, he took what should have been a lethal dose of radiation, but he lived. He lived to see the fall of the Soviet Union, the interregnum of Yeltsin and the rise of a new czar. And since 2014, he himself had been a deputy in the Russian Duma. He survived the flames of Chernobyl, 
but not the Chicom 90, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 78. A very brave man, General Nikolai Antoshkin. Don't let the sun catch you crying The night's the time for all your tears Jerry Marsden died a few days ago at the age of 78. He fronted the second most successful pop group from Liverpool, on the United States Billboard Hot 100. The most successful pop group from Liverpool in the United States were the Beatles. So Jerry and the Pacemakers came a fairly distant second and not for very long. Uh, Jerry, as I recall him, seemed to get old quite quick. Uh, The standard line on Jerry and the Pacemakers was a Clive James crack from the 80s. These days, Jerry needs a pacemaker. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, Jerry had the last laugh there because he outlived Clive. I ran into him every so often in later life at radio shows on which Jerry would be promoting uh, yet another special charity fundraising remake of a very particular hit of his from the beginning of his career. Back in 1963, he gave Bill Shankly the legendary manager of Liverpool Football Club, an advanced copy of this record, and Bill loved it, telling the old Mersey beat rocker, Jerry, my son, I have given you a football team and you have given us a song. Within weeks, it was being bayed by thousands of fans on the terraces every Saturday. Uh, Soon it was on the club's coat of arms and eventually on the gates to the stadium. And then it spread to other stadia, In 1990, at the All-Star Anti-Apartheid Gala at Wembley Stadium, the crowd broke into uh, its uh, memorable ambulatory refrain as Nelson Mandela walked upon the stage. And Mr Mandela, having been released from prison only a few weeks ago, was not quite up to speed on socio-cultural phenomena of the previous three decades, and so he asked Adelaide Tambo, standing next to him, what the tune was. Ah, some football song, said Mrs Tambo. (laughs) In fact, the football song started out as a Rodgers and Hammerstein show tune from their most serious and sombre production, Carousel. Now, Richard Rodgers liked his composition sung just how they're sung on stage in the show, and that's it. So upon hearing that this particular tune was now, quote, some football song roared out every Saturday afternoon by bazillions of footy fans, his first reaction was one of utter horror. His second reaction was to call his lawyer and see if there was any way to have it stopped. And there wasn't. And then something weirder happened. The 80s were a pretty terrible time for English football, with awful once-in-a-lifetime catastrophes becoming almost routine. And Jerry Marsden effected a further transformation in Richard Rodgers' show tune. Having become a song for football matches, it then became a song for football match disasters and then a song for disasters in general, the go-to number for defiance in the face of adversity. Uh, Perhaps you're feeling that uh, you could use a little of that right now. Okay, sing it, Jerry. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of a stone There's a golden sky And the sweet silver sound of love Walk on 
by Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, as taken to the hit parade by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Walk on, walk on, Jerry Marston. Just under a year ago, a 99-year-old widower became universally beloved throughout Britain and known to one and all as Captain Tom. Back in 1939, 19-year-old Tom Moore, enlisted with the 8th Battalion, the Duke of Wellington's Regiment, got shipped to India with the Royal Armoured Corps, fought at the Battle of Ramri Island, and then in the Burma campaign. Burma. It's always Burma, not Myanmar, no matter how many coups they stage. Captain Moore came home to England and for the next 63 years organised the annual reunions for the Duke of Wellington's regiment. Uh, Three quarters of a century after the war, he opted to re-enlist in a new campaign and help raise money for the National Health Service. So on April the 6th, Captain Tom announced he'd walk 10 laps a day in his garden with the aid of his walker and while wearing his medals, the Burma Star, uh, 1939-45 star, the war medal, in order to raise a £1,000 to help fight COVID by his 100th birthday on April the 30th. When the fundraising campaign closed on that 100th birthday, three and a half weeks later, he had raised £33 million. He got knighted by the Queen at Windsor Castle. He got a birthday phone call from the Secretary General of the United Nations, whoever that is. He he was loved by all. And in December, British Airways, to thank him for inspiring a demoralised people in the slough of Despond, gave him a free flight for a holiday in Barbados. He came back to England from Barbados and last month came down with pneumonia. Because of the pneumonia, he could not be given the COVID vaccine, uh, for otherwise he would surely have been one of those 15% vaccinated in the United Kingdom. He tested positive for the COVID a week ago, was taken to hospital on Sunday and died today. Last year, Michael Ball, the popular British entertainer, whom you can hear uh, Don Black uh, talking about on my New Year special with Don, uh, Michael appeared on the BBC and decided to sing by way of tribute to Captain Tom, You'll Never Walk Alone, because he was walking for charity and doing so in isolation while being watched by a socially distant guard of honour from the 1st Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment. Uh, with whom the Duke of Wellington's were merged a couple of years back. And within 24 hours, someone at Decca Records had come up with the idea of an unlikely duet. Here are Captain Sir Tom Moore and Michael Ball. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm There's a golden sky And a sweet silver song Of the lark Walk on through the wind Walk on Stand low Walk on Walk on With hope In your heart And you'll never Walk alone You'll never Walk
On April the 30th, 2020, Tom Moore's 100th birthday, that record became Michael Ball's first number one single. Oh, and also the first for Captain Tom, who became the oldest person ever to have a number one smash, breaking the previous record held by Tom Jones, who was a mere whippersnapper of 68 last time he hit the top spot. No other man in history has ever gotten to celebrate his 100th birthday with a number one single. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, a few weeks shy of his 101st birthday, Captain Sir Tom Moore. James Cross was born in Ireland and went a long way from Tipperary. He had a good war with the Royal Engineers and then saw service all over the Commonwealth, New Delhi, Winnipeg, Kuala Lumpur, before finding himself in Montreal in 1968 as the United Kingdom's Senior Trade Commissioner. Not the most demanding posting, one would have thought, but on October the 5th, 1970, members of the Front de Libération du Québec, the Quebec Liberation Front, seized him at his home on Redpath Crescent in the Golden Square Mile and held him hostage. Five days later, Pierre Laporte, the Deputy Premier of Quebec, was also kidnapped by the FLQ and was found dead in the trunk of a car at Longueuil Airport a week later. Mr Cross was expected to meet the same fate. Instead, they held him for two months before agreeing to release him in return for a flight to Cuba. When it was all over... He recounted his experience with somewhat British understatement. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I don't want to say very much. I'm still rather tired. But what I first would like to say is what a wonderful sense of relief it is to be back in the normal world after eight weeks of close captivity. And I think the one thing that this dreadful period has given me is a sense of the importance of the ordinary, simple things of life which most people take for granted. After ten minutes of that, the news guys uh, wanted something a bit more vivid, a bit more colour. Uh, can you tell us when you knew that the kidnappers hideout had been discovered and what transpired at this point? Nothing much happened for about the next four hours. Then the power was cut at, I think, around two in the morning. I was in bed at the time. They got me up. Um, they handcuffed, they took me into a corridor in the middle of the house. They handcuffed me to a doorknob. So I spent the night in a very uncomfortable position with my hand up like that. One question, how would you describe your kidnappers, Mr. Cross? What type of people were they? It's awfully difficult for me to, to, to say I, I would, would really like to think about this. They were obviously convinced and, 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 and fervent revolutionaries. Did you have continuing discussions with them? I had a certain amount of political discussion with them in the first two weeks. But I'm afraid that after the death of Pierre Laporte, I didn't feel like discussing too much with him. One at the back, really. No, no, Mr. Cross remained with Her Majesty's civil service, but he never again served outside the UK. A much-travelled man was now wary of abroad. He survived the Front de Libération du Québec, but not the Chicom 19. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 99, Trade Commissioner and Hostage, James Cross. Against the great toll of the Wu flu, we have the inspiring story from Spain of Brocelia Blanco. Her family was informed that she had died of the COVID on January 13th and that she'd been buried on January 14th. No funeral, because like birthday parties, they're illegal now. Uh, ten days later, back at the old folks' home in Jovet, where they lived, her widower was sitting, weeping, Still mourning the death of his wife when Brocelia Blanco walked in through the door and had no idea why her husband was so upset. It turned out that it had been her roommate 
at the specialised corona facility who had kicked the bucket and there'd been a bit of a clerical error. So she's now going to court uh, to get the judge to declare her back from the grave. Filling in for Rush Limbaugh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Stein. Yes, indeed. America's Anchorman is away. And America's Anchorman is away. As I have said at the start of all these guest hosting stints for 15 years now, America's Anchorman is away playing among the stars on that great radio set in the sky for all eternity, because those radio waves never stop. So three decades of rush are flying across the galaxies now and forever. And uh, all those early disc jockey shows are up there somewhere too. At, uh, at Ronald Reagan's memorial, the president's dear friend Margaret Thatcher said, uh, for the final years of his life, Ronnie's mind was clouded by illness. That cloud has now lifted. He is himself again, more himself than at any time on this earth. Rush's mind was entirely unclouded right to the end, as you know if you heard his last show just a fortnight ago. But for this miserable, ghastly final year, his body was ravaged. And that cloud is now lifted, and he is free of that wasted shell, and in Mrs. Thatcher's splendid words, more himself than at any time on this earth. And I'm not a theological scholar, so I do not know how it works in the great hereafter, or whether they need bumper music of the spheres up there, but I hope Rush's hearing is also restored, and a grand old disc jockey can uh, once again listen to all his favourite hits, like that spectacular intro to Tom Jones uh, doing It's Not Unusual that he especially liked. Rush was unusual, unique and irreplaceable, uh, nothing like him in the history of American broadcasting. Um, today, just uh, 48 hours after a grim ending, we all deep inside knew was coming. We will remember Rush and we will hear Rush in that magnificent voice, the perfect radio voice. First of all, Catherine, my wife and I would like to express our deepest condolences Thank for you. the loss of Rush. Thank you. We loved him. We loved him from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, my question is, how did, it, how did Elton John evolve as the... Uh, musical guest at your wedding well that's a, a great question mark both rush and i loved elton john for for many years and ironically he happened to be staying in the exact same hotel as we were in hawaii we often went out to hawaii to visit my parents who live there we would go most christmases every year for many years and the year before we got married, just prior, Elton John was staying in the same hotel as we were. In fact, I believe he was in the in the hotel suite in the floor above us, and we were right below. And Rush and I were on the deck, and we said to each other, how about we invite Elton John to perform at our wedding? That certainly won't be at all <laughs> newsworthy. Um, so that is exactly what we did. We we thought at first it was it was a bit funny and perhaps it wouldn't happen. But I wrote a letter to Elton John and and told him how much we loved and adored him and respected his his music and his career and asked if he might be available to headline at our wedding and one thing led to another and sure enough he accepted very graciously and he was there and he was absolutely wonderful rush and um sir elton john kept in touch as we did and they spoke outside of of the wedding and it was a wonderful friendship i would say there were actually quite a few similarities that might not come across on the surface that is very uh, interesting when you when you put it like that catherine because people think that elton is just uh, another conventional cookie cutter left-wing rocker but actually he's a much more uh, sophisticated person and he's very decent and true uh, to friends he, he doesn't abandon them 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful man. Do you have a favorite Elton John song? I know uh, the disc jockey side of Rush, he, he he must have played a ton of Elton in his disc jockey days. But did you have a particular favorite? We did. We had a lot of favorites that we were actually able to put into the wedding. But I will say that Rush's favorite song, and and mine as well, is Your Song by Uh. Sir Elton John. And in fact, a a little bit of inside baseball, as Rush would say, um, I played that for Rush in his final uh, days. And he was able to listen to that song. And we remembered um, our wedding and Elton John in particular. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside I'm not one of those who can easily hide I don't have much money But boy, if I did I'd buy a big house where We both could live If I was a sculptor, but then again, no, or a man who makes potions in a traveling show, I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. Tell everybody This is your song It may be quite simple But now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down in the words How wonderful life is While you're in The verses, well, they've got me quite cross But the sun's been quite kind While I wrote this song It's for people like you that Keep it turned on So excuse me for getting But these things I do See, I've forgotten if they're green or they're blue. Anyway, the thing is, what I really mean. Yours are the sweetest guys I've ever seen. And you can tell everybody this is the song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind what I put down in the words, how wonderful life is while you're in the world. I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind. One final word on Rush, whom I admired and adored and in whose debt I shall forever be. Rush never wanted to do a final show, never wanted to retire. Even as his cancer advanced, all he wanted was to be here for tomorrow's show, or if not the day after tomorrow's, or next week's, even as his wretched broken body refused to cooperate. 
and so in his last months he would often have a guest host standing by in the studio, ready to take over in case his great voice faltered 40 minutes or an hour and a half into the three-hour show. And it fell to me to be on standby for the last two shows of Rush's life. I was happy to do it. I would have gone on doing it for as long as he wanted. And if you're worried about having to take over at a minute's notice, you listen more intently and you get to know the telltale signs. And at six minutes past midday Eastern time on that last day, I had the hint of weakness in his vocal timber. And then, as always, he somehow willed his frail and shrunken form to rouse itself and power through for the next three hours so that nobody listening, none of the listening millions, noticed a thing. No one other than me and Catherine and a couple of others would have heard anything other than Rush doing an effortless broadcast and having the time of his life. And at the very end of the show, he chose to thank me for standing by for three hours, and so I feel slightly embarrassed that a glorious third-of-a-century run came to an end not with any of Rush's big thoughts or unique insights of which there had been so many over the decades. Why Rush makes the big bucks, uh, as another fallen comrade, Kathy Shadle, always liked to put it. Uh, instead, for his sign-off of the last show, there were no grand thoughts, and instead his final words on air were, Thank you again, Mr. Stein. We'll be back soon. The second part was not to be, and the first part was not necessary. But many people in the last week have pointed out to me those last words of Rush, including some commenters here. It was not by design, it was the roll of the dice, and I feel a little sheepish about it. But today we shall take our leave as Rush took his leave. Mark Stein, thank you again, Mr. Stein, for standing by today. We'll be back soon. No. Thank you, Rush, for everything.
Tschüss. Ciao.